Happy Monday, everybody. July 1st. We are in the month in which training camp will start. 24 days from today, the Texans will hit the field. Mark and I will be doing Texans training camp live in the Houston Methodist Training Center. So excited oh, to have it all back in Houston. Welcome into tonight's show. This is going to be theme week, and I'm going to be your host for that, John Harris, football analyst and sideline reporter. And you go, wait a second, theme week? What do you mean by theme week? Well, let me give you a couple behind-the-curtain things. First of all, everybody in the building's out this week. This is vacation for everybody. I'm not just talking players and staff, uh, coaches, etc. Everybody, from accounting to HR to us, everybody's out of the building this week. So we're all on vacation, wink, wink. Now, if something were to happen a football team's never really truly always on vacation. If there was something that needed to happen, eh, it'll happen. And if it does, we'll break into the coverage throughout the week and give it to you live. Uh, but the plan is, this week, it's theme week. And what do I mean by that? Well, every day this week is going to have a theme. Tonight's theme is called Life in the NFL. We got a couple of guys that played in the NFL, one that played in NFL Europe, We've got one of the best individuals you're going to meet in the Texans building who you may have never heard of, but when you see the Texans play, it's pretty much a direct result of what that guy does for those players every day. And I'm talking about Director of Equipment Services, Mike Parson. Mike is one of the best guys you're going to find. But every single piece of equipment, Everything you see the Texans wear, the coaches wear, everybody wear, put on, Whether it, and it doesn't matter. When you see them on the sideline chewing gum, that's all Mike Parson. He's all take control of all of that. Now, this year, I can imagine not going to Greenbrier probably makes Mike happier than anybody else. But Mike sat down with DP to talk about his life in the NFL, in his role and his responsibilities here with the Houston Texans. Here's DP. With Mike Parsons. Let's talk about your typical work week, because right now I know you're gearing up for the season, but once the season hits, you're busy every single day. So walk me through what a typical game week sort of looks like for you. So uh, the biggest thing for us, game week, it usually starts as soon as the game is over. And usually it's, all right, let me see who traded jerseys. Oh, because this now impacts your job. Oh, big time. This is is a big (laughs) thing. And, uh, we can uh, attribute this to soccer. I think yes. World Cup, uh, players seeing guys swapping their jerseys right it, on the field. It's cool for fans and people in the media to see, but is this a huge headache for you because you got to keep track of jerseys and who gave away what? I wouldn't say it's a headache. I would say it's more of a nightmare <laughs> because – and the reason why – Why is that? Why can't you just replace the jersey? Well, here's the deal. I know that everybody think that we have the unlimited amount of jerseys available to the players, which – we, we don't? We no. kind of don't, but we really? kind of do. Okay. And uh, so as soon as the game is over with, I'm trying to figure out who traded. And I automatically know that everybody wants to Sean Watson's jersey, so I'll order adequate amount of jerseys for him at the beginning of the year. Most people want Hawkins' jersey. Sure. Uh, a lot of people want J.J. jersey, but J.J. loves his jersey a certain way, so he don't he don't really trade it. He'll send him another jersey. Okay. Um. But the issue that comes in play is if you have a short week, a Thursday night game, and you're wearing that same uniform. We had this issue probably about three years ago. We were going on the road, and 
I received the jersey the morning we left. Oh, so wow. that's the, that's why I said that's a little basketball. stressful. It's very stressful, and we have a backup jersey for everyone. So, yeah, I was going to say in the worst case scenario, they're going to go out in something yeah. with their name on it. Wor- worst case scenario, we have a jersey. It may not be exactly how they like it. Exactly, and the thing is, we always want to have the exact replica of a jersey for a player available just in case. I don't know if you saw. I was going to bring up DeAndre Hopkins one game where his jersey was torn and hanging off his body. Like, are you thinking about instances like that? Do they have time to even change? I guess if it's it's in the first half. We could have changed it, but he did not want it. He 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 liked it. it. He got a lot of publicity for that. I kind of liked that. Trust me, Nike, I had a message from Nike as soon as I got on the bus. You're talking about the game in Baltimore, right? Yeah, Yeah. it was. Before I even got on the plane, I I had Nike people calling me. Because what were they They were probably not they, happy? Well, they were worried that it was a issue with them. Okay. With the jersey, but it really wasn't. My it man, was more an issue. My man it. Hop. <laughs> <laughs> he had quite a few defenders hanging on him, so yeah, I think they, that was proof of that. Yeah, he, he took the scissors to the jersey before the game, and then the guys, they were, they were holding him. But, uh, oh, I see. Okay. But through that experience, we were able to develop a jersey for him that now he don't have to cut it anymore. So. That's one of the. So, things. what does he cut exactly? Is he giving himself a little bit of space in there? A little space under his arms, basically. And every 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 player on the team have a, a certain way they like their jerseys, and I don't have a life, so I know how they want them. And uh, I work with my seamstress; she does a good job of whatever specification they like them. Like Deshaun likes his jersey really tight, and he's probably the only quarterback in the league where it takes two equipment managers to put his shoulder pads on him <laughs> because it's really, really tight. And he needs it really tight. It's probably good for him for, yeah. for his game. I can see why it's for him. It's People might think it's a vanity thing, but I would think no, also no, it's harder it. to grab onto him exactly. when there's not a jersey floating around. Yeah, but it's tight in his body, but he has enough uh, space in, in the arms for mobility. For, for his arm. To, exactly. Okay. So we work with Nike and we got that right. They love it. But – uh. That's that's the only thing about uh, the jersey trade is you, okay. you worry about getting the product in, getting another jersey in. So after the game, you you do your mental inventory of what jerseys you have, what jerseys you don't have, and then what happens? You send them away to magically get washed, yeah, so, and cleaned for the next game. Yeah, so the like I said, that's a myth that players get new jerseys every game. That's not true. Uh, my staff they do a very good job of meticulously. I mean, you ought to see these guys. They're in there with scissors, cutting threads that people don't see. Wow. Uh, Taking double-sided tape and getting whatever little marks off the fabric to make it look brand new. We press them with our heat press. And people see me in there with a lighter sometimes going to them just to make sure that the fabric, if it's frayed, that uh, we, we just want it to look good. I think this is why people think that, because they do look like brand-new jerseys every single week when yeah. they run out there. But that's a testament to your staff to make Absolutely. these dirty-looking jerseys look like brand-new in just a week's time. Yeah, that's and, and that, that's our motto, really and truly, is we don't we do not do this for credit. We, we have a pride of the work that we do, and we want game day to be as smooth as possible for the players and coaches. So all they have to do is just concentrate on playing the game they don't have to worry about anything and that's part of my job is one when we go on the road getting everything there for every department whether it's 
uh, the equipment department, the video department, the athletic training room, operations, the nutrition, uh, weight staff, anything, uh, PR staff, anything that needs to go on the road, I'm basically in charge of getting it to whatever city we're going to. So you take all those jerseys, you get them ready for the next game. What happens during the week with practice? Because practice, you've got, they've got their practice shells. They've yeah. got their shorts. They've, sometimes they wear their jersey, their pads. Yeah, so we were we have practice jerseys that we wear, so that 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 doesn't really impact us. But each week, it's a routine for us. Mondays, if we're on the road, you know, I'm calling the visiting city clubhouse manager. I'm calling the equipment guy, just confirm that we're in whatever color jersey we're supposed to be in. And uh, then on Tuesdays, communicating with the airline, uh, the weights, what what we're going to be traveling with underneath the plane. Uh, making sure that trucking is lined up because we truck a lot of stuff to the uh, opposing city now. So it's just a lot of logistical stuff, a lot of communication with the staff, uh, different departments to make sure everybody's on the same page. What are you trucking to the games other than just the gear that the players are wearing? So believe it it or not, uh, we spend a lot of time packing up stuff that we may need that we never touch. Our motto is better to need and not uh, better to need and have than having not have and need. This sounds like my packing motto because I take everything with me when I go on trips. I butchered that. <laughs> Everyone makes. I know. I know what you mean though. <laughs> I want to better say that to, again. And I, and I don't even want. I don't even want to attempt it. Better to better to better to have and not need than to need and not have. and not have it. That's there you I, go. That's what. No, I, I totally. I I totally co uh, co sponsor that method of packing. Yeah. So what does that include? Who everything. Uh, any type of T-shirt, any type of bubble gum, any type of shoes, shower shoes, cleats. We have extra cleats, uh, detached cleats in case we're on a grass field and the surface is not as good. Uh, if there's a possibility of rain, even if there's not a possibility of rain, we bring everything with us. Uh, cold weather. Yeah, I was going to say cold weather games, you have to pack all the winter gear because yeah. you don't know what it's going to be like on the sidelines exactly. for cold, everybody. For everybody. Uh, that's for coaches, staff, players. We we have all kinds of hot packs. We, you know, I, I picked some of my counterparts in the cold weather cities because we, we had the luxury of planning an indoor facility every week for home games. So, you know, I have my friends up in Philly and stuff like that that give me some of their tips that they use. But we try to think of everything, try to make the player comfortable, but don't uh, mess with their performance. Okay, so in your talking about packing, I can't help but think about the Greenbrier and how just a few years ago, I remember seeing you start taking inventory early on about everything that needed to go up to the Greenbrier because you really just had to move almost the entire facility there, right? Pretty much. Uh, were you in charge? Well, you were in charge of like the weight room, like uh, a lot of the machines went up there as well? Yes. So everything that uh, came from NRG Stadium to the Greenbrier, uh, I had to get it up there, and um, thank God we have a good uh, relationship with Jetco because we took six semis full of gear for every department I, up there. I mean, I remember seeing all the semi-trucks. Yes. It seemed like we basically emptied out the stadium into those trucks. Pretty much, and you have to have it up there because you're moving the entire operation, and if somebody needs something, you gotta have it. Wait, there's no, there's no running out to the store no, over no. there. There's no, hey, uh, <laughs> NFL store for equipment. Because yeah, you, you're isolated up there in the beautiful 
mountains of West Virginia. Was that stressful for you? The first year was very stressful because you just didn't know what to expect. But uh, last year was so much easier because, you know, we had one year being up there on our belt. We knew everybody up there. You knew what they had up there and what you were going to need. Absolutely. And uh, I enjoyed going up there because the weather was beautiful. You did? I thought you would be like me, one of the few people just so happy to not have to move up there. Oh, trust me, I'm happy we're not going back up there. But (laughs) I did develop a relationship with some people up there. And I love golfing. And they have world-class golfing. They do. There. They do. And uh, it's it's, it's going to be a place I'm going to go vacation. But Is that not, right? But now you don't have to pack six semi-trucks no. to get there. And and the biggest <laughs> thing is I actually have a summer now. Because used to, I would only take one week off, the 4th of July week, because it's just so much to get packed up. And just thinking about once you get there, you, you're already up there. Now you're thinking about getting back because – once you get up there, you got to get it back. You got to go to Kansas City. And, play and we game. didn't even just come straight back no. because the first year we went to Carolina, played, then went back. Went back, and then last we... year was Kansas City. So then mm-hmm. you have to figure out what goes back to Houston because obviously you don't need all the machines and the exactly. weights and stuff. And so you've got to basically there's a fork in the road with the equipment. Absolutely. Half of it comes back. So what I did last year was I was like, you know, we're gonna play in Kansas City. So what I do is. Me and my guys, all of our game trunks that we normally take on the road with us, we left here in Houston. And uh, my clubhouse manager and my trucker, they packed everything up on the truck, and I watched them with my checklist via FaceTime. and <laughs> Checked everything off? Checked everything off the list, and then that truck met us in Kansas City. And while we were playing the game, all the semis that were at the Greenbrier that was getting loaded on the last day, they were being unloaded here because when we get back from Kansas City, we need to be able to walk into the facility. And have it set up and ready and to go. it's ready to go. Like, everything needs to be leapfrogging. There's no lag time, so. Do you have nightmares about forgetting stuff? Because I always have this where I'm on my way to the airport and I'll go through a mental checklist of what I could have forgotten, which seems pointless because at that point I'm not going to turn around and get it. But do you ever, like, worry? Does this keep you up at night? Like, I may have forgotten something really important. No, it, it my first couple of years it did, but when you have such a good group of coworkers, teammates like I have, they don't. When I tell you the guys that I work with, they take pride in what they do, and uh, we have so many good processes that we do, and we we really prepare. Like I mean, I was going to say you have to be highly highly organized. Yeah. Are you just a Type A personality outside of your job? You've got to be, Mike. Yes, there is I, no way that you could do this job and not be organized. I like organization, but <laughs> but you have to be able to adapt because in this business, you don't know what's going to happen. Sure. And it's always a high-pressure situation. Say, like, we have a helmet malfunction during the game, like a, a equipment break. You have to get that fixed because you don't want the player to miss more than the play. It could be a critical part of the game. So we have backups to pretty much everything. And – um that's the only thing really and truly that keeps me up is something happening during the game. Leaving something, it really doesn't keep me up because I feel like we prepare, we, we prepare for that all week. So, it, you know, we got a good routine down. Because I'm down on the sidelines and I've got to deal with the weather as well, Mike's always looking out for me too. Hey, you have, Johnny, you have, you have stuff for snow. Do you have stuff for rain? Do you need anything? Let me know. I mean, he's always 
looking out for me when I and I appreciate that wholly. Mike is such a well-respected guy in the building. That's our director of equipment services for our football organization, Mike Parson. Coming up, how about a Pro Bowler? How about Wade Smith? Wade was here for the draft with me and Sean Pendergast. I had a blast. I had a blast talking football with him, talking about his days uh, in in at Memphis, then getting drafted. Well, Drew Doherty sat down and talked specifically about that 2011 season. Boy, it was a special one. Life in the NFL with Wade Smith next, right here in Texans All Access. We continue with our theme for the day, life in the NFL with former Pro Bowler Wade Smith. I, I'm a huge fan of Wade. I was a fan of his on the field, but have done a lot with Wade over the years and got to do draft Saturday with him and Sean Pendergast. It was just a blast. Well, he sat down with Drew Doherty and talked about being a part of one of the best offensive lines in the NFL at the time and the best offensive line that Texas ever put together in 2011. And he was part of a run of a couple of playoff years in 2011-2012. Well, that offensive line was so good, and Wade was a big part of that. Celebrating life in the NFL, here's Drew Doherty with former Pro Bowler Wade Smith. I mean, I never am ever going to forget Thanksgiving Day, seeing you guys come off the field. And I, you, I, it was you specifically, I remember, like, identifying coming off the field because you all just played three, four days earlier a long overtime game, and you won against Jacksonville, and then you win this – that was an improbable win, the way the game was going against right. Detroit. Right. I mean, everything swung off that four-set touchdown, quote-unquote. I mean, I thought the fans were – there was like it was close to a riot because they were throwing stuff on the field. They but, had reason. They yeah, had reason. yeah. I mean, they were, they were <laughs> yeah, angry, they justifiable. Yeah. But I remember you coming off the field, and it looked like you y'all had lost the game, all of you guys. But I remember you, and then you've told us after the fact about your ribs. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, man, that makes sense. It's just absolutely <laughs> spent, man, because I broke my ribs in the first quarter of that game against Jacksonville. And if you remember, that that was the game that Dre – It's like five quarters, time. yeah. It's a five-quarter game, basically, and he scores a touchdown on the screen pass. Um, and then we had to backdoor that with a, a Thursday morning game. It wasn't even Thursday night. Yeah, 11 a.m. 11 a.m. game in Detroit. You had to travel. And so, and it was going against uh, Indomitian Sue and Nick Fairley. That, that wasn't like, there was no, uh, there was no break or anything like that. Playing with, in the, uh, playing with the, uh, not a flat jacket, but what is the. Uh, I know what you're talking uh, about. The, uh, I can't even think of the name like of it. Like a protector around your midsection. Yeah. And, and so uh, it was rough. It was definitely rough. It was definitely painful, but it was, it was a lot better feeling knowing that we came out with two W's. I yeah. think it would have been even worse if we would have lost. Um, those games um, in overtime. It was a fun season. I mean, the sun set on Thanksgiving Day, and you guys had 10 wins in the bank, and you'd win another game, and then New England on Monday Night Football happened. But that was a fun season. I mean, y'all were, y'all were really rolling. I had, what, a five-game win streak and a six-game win streak there at one point. Yeah, 11-1. and one at, at, That was a nice start. Yeah, man, we, we played some games that people didn't necessarily think we were going to win. We went on the road and beat Chicago. That was Seven a, and one Chicago, yeah. yeah. Both, both of us were seven and one at the time. It was I think it was Sunday Night Football, mm-hmm. uh, big-time game, and um, it, it was one of it was our type of game, you know what I mean. We won the game running the ball up front. Arian had a big game, um, playing against a formidable defense mm-hmm. the Bears back then. As you know, Brian Urlacher and Lance Briggs and guys like Peanut that. Tillman had like eight forced fumbles that year. Yeah, Peanut Tillman and Julius Peppers. They had a they yeah, had a, they had a big right. time that year. And um, the field was terrible. It, it was reminded me of a throwback to like the way the Patriots fields used to be back in the day, where it was just slosh out there and. Um, and it was cold, wet, and you know what? We we grinded out a W. And those are like the, the, the games that you really enjoy, especially as an offensive lineman where you know it's a, the game is on our back. 
uh, let's go out and get it. And we went out and got it. You yeah. know what I mean? Our defense played really well. I thought Danielle Manning was really cool for him to, to go back to Chicago. And I think he got at least one interception, maybe two. But he um, he made some big plays up there. So that was just a, overall, that was that was one of the highlights, I think, of that season. It was. It was a cool season. A couple of your teammates, few of your teammates are now coaching again here. They're assistants. You got TJ Yates. He's helping out on the offense. Cushing is assistant strength and conditioning, in addition to doing some other things as well. But Yates, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, he's a former quarterback, so he can obviously help out with Deshaun Watson and, and A.J. McCarron. But that's not – I mean, having being a quarterback, you know the offense. You have to know all the offense. So he can kind of help out in some other areas as well, maybe offensive line even, you know, receivers, running backs. Right. You think about T.J., he's already a, a hero in the city. If you, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he led us on the drive to – to win our, our our first division against Cincinnati back in 2011, and you know won some big ball games against the Falcons, and and when people kind of looked at us as like, okay, you lost Matt Schaub, you lost your quarterback, yeah. you, you have no shot because you lost Schaub and you lost Matt Liner, um, and so you have this this third string quarterback that's a rookie. He comes in, and TJ be, just became TJ, and he throughout his career with the Texans, he just come in there and, and win a big game that people didn't think they, that he could do. And so you have that kind of cachet. He's, he's definitely respected um, in the locker room. There's, there's still some guys that are uh, still around from those days. And, and TJ just always struck me as the type of guy coming to huddle, super cool. Um, never, never, the game was never too big for him. And you got to kind of have that mentality as a coach. You got to be able to be even killed and be able to understand that you're going to go through adversity, but you're going to have to fight your way through it. And so I think, you know, TJ being a coach, it just makes too much sense. And it's really cool that he gets to come back here to Houston and do yeah. that. And, and the fact that he's such a young coach that I think he can, he can bridge um, some of the differences that you might have going on between a, a coaching staff and the, the current players. And so I think he's going he's gonna to be well uh, represented um, throughout the team because he's going to be able to communicate with the guys in ways that maybe you know, older coach may not and be able to see it from that perspective and be able to relate those type of messages back and forth between him and, and, and the higher-ups. And it's wild. You talk about the connection. So he can connect with guys like Jonathan Joseph, yeah, who, who was here when he was here. JJ Watt was yeah. here when he was here. But then I, you forget about it. He was he was playing two seasons ago. So like yeah. Julian Davenport played with him, yeah, knows him. And Julian Davenport is still in the almost the infancy of his NFL career. And there's a lot of guys that are his age that know TJ and played in, and were in the locker room with him. They're in the locker room. We're in the huddle with him. Yeah, in in, in critical situations, and critical moments, and know that like this is that's tj and i think i think from a coach i mean from a player's perspective it's like man wow like i keep like you think about him and cushing like cushing being in the weight room yeah um it's awkward it's funny but it's cool at the same time you know talking to some guys about like what is it like seeing cush as a coach now and they're like you know cush is he's completely you know all in on being a coach and it's, it's cool to see um and like i said them having that ability to to be a coach and be respected, but at the same time, guys respect them for the fact of what they did on the field and what they did amongst the guys that are already here. Um, I thought it was a, a great um, thought process and implementation of, of a, a culture here with the Texans by getting guys like that to come back and coach. And it's something that I've seen um, done, like in New England. There's a bunch of guys that are former players that, co- that end up coaching up there, and then they end up going – either staying there or going throughout the league. And, and hopefully we can keep a TJ Yates here as, as long as possible, maybe eventually be the offensive coordinator, same with Brian Cushing, and um, go from there. But, yeah, I think I think it's definitely going to help all the guys on the team with those guys being here. So what happens 2011 if 
Albert Hainsworth doesn't squish Matt Schaub's foot. Matt Schaub plays the rest of the season. I'm probably wearing a ring on my finger. That's you think so? Big. Yeah, that, that was the type of team we had, man. If, if, if you just give us two out of the – we might have had like six or seven key injuries that year, but let us keep Matt Schaub and let us keep Mario Williams. Just let, let, let those two guys stay healthy for the entire season. Mario had five sacks in five games. And he goes out for the year. And you have a guy like Brooks Reed comes in and has his best year of his career yeah. as a rookie. Um, you lose Matt Schaub. At the time, I think we were 7-3, and three, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and, you know, when you look at what happened in the playoffs and some of the games we lost down the stretch, a lot of times we were, we were, we were playing against the Ravens on the road and we turned the ball over a little bit too much. You know it's, what I mean? It, it didn't – it was a loss. I still say that's one of the five best games in this – this team's history. I mean, that was an amazing game. It was an amazing game, and just looking at it from the perspective of a guy that's up front, the, our offensive line and our defensive line dominated that football oh, game. Oh, man. Like, we dominated that football game. And so usually when an offense and a defensive line dominates the game, you're going to win the game. And yeah. the reason we didn't win the game is because, you know, we had a, a muff punt. We had too many interceptions, too many turnovers. And so that was what caught, cost us the game. It was still a close game. We had the ball at the end of the game to try to tie it up and, and send it to overtime. But you turn the ball over too much. In the playoffs, on the road against a really good team, it's a recipe for for taking an L, and you know you can't get those those games back. And so I think that if you know if you had Matt Schaub as quarterback, those turnovers I don't think they're going to be there. I think that if you have Mario Williams still playing, um, stand up outside linebacker, I mean it's it's even more dominating of a performance that you have against the Ravens and we beat them and then we go up I think we would have probably had to play New England that next week and I think we would have went up there and beat them and then I don't Super well that's okay that's if yeah if your record had stayed the same but you gotta wonder well would the record have been better with those two guys that you're talking about that's a good point we probably win a couple more maybe maybe you have a home game Think about that at a home AFC championship game. And maybe we didn't maybe we wouldn't had to go on the road to play Baltimore. Maybe yeah. we would have been here to play Baltimore. A lot of things, domino effect, butterfly effect, all those type of things, uh, coulda, shoulda, woulda. But we when you look at that team and you look at the amount of talent that was on that team, I think on the offense there was at least I wanna say nine guys that either had already been to a Pro Bowl, went to the Pro Bowl that year or went to the Pro Bowl within Thanks two years. And then the same with the defense. I mean, you got guys like Glover Quinn that was on that defense, Connor Barwin, Antonio Smith, JJ Watt, D'Amico. Ryan Cushing, D'Amico Ryans, um, Jonathan Joseph, yep. Daniel Manning, Kareem Jackson. Like I'm, I'm, I'm counting on my finger. I'm at nine now. Um, that's just a ridiculous amount of talent we had on the defense. And then you then look at what we had on our offense. You had Dwayne, myself, Chris. You had uh, so it was the best line team. The ten know, and eleven lines yeah, were the best. You had team Eric history. Winston, yeah. Mike Brazil. Uh, you had Andre Johnson. You had Owen Daniels, Arian Foster. I mean, you even had think about our running backs. Our running backs were deep. That was the year that Ben, ben Tate almost had a thousand yards rushing. Like we had, we had a really good scheme that we could line up and and put out there against anybody and be successful on offense. Um, you had Wade Phillips in his first year as a defensive coordinator. You know throughout the history of the league what that means. It's a major it's turnaround. A, it's going to be a ma- it was a major turnaround, and it's going to be a, a group that's a, a dominating group. And so, um, but like I said, you get in the playoffs, can't turn the ball over. You have yeah. to be able to protect the football, and that's what we did not do, and that's why we did not win win at all. I will never forget that night doing radio after Jacoby Jones punted that ball off his head. Oh. I still, I, I cringe. I was doing a national show at the time, and I spent the whole first segment talking about that one play. Oh, my goodness. In our final segment, 
We're going to celebrate life in the NFL. The guy that played in the NFL, but he also played in NFL Europe, and oh, he's got some great stories, and he is one of the best guys you're going to want to meet. How about Clint Sterner's life in the NFL next right here on Texans All Access? One final segment of Texans All Access on this Monday evening, and it's the start of our theme week, and tonight's theme is life in the NFL. And we had our director of equipment services, Mike Parson, on to kick off the show. Then we had former Pro Bowler Wade Smith in the last segment. And we turned this last one over to, well, I want to call it Clint Sterner's story time, which is all kinds of fabulous. But if you haven't heard Clint Sterner on Sports Radio 610, you're missing out. A little background on Clint. Clint played at Baytown Lee High School, tremendous high school player. He went to Arkansas. Had a, great, had a great career as a quarterback at the University of Arkansas. He moved on to the Cowboys and played for the Cowboys, started a game, won that start, even though there were some people um, kind of passing around a little bit um, of shade his way, which was not deserved at all. And I, I say this, Clint, Clint, was, Clint was never going to be a guy that could, you know, he's not going to be Troy Aikman. He's not going to be Brett Favre, but... Clint was smart. He was tough. He was all the things you wanted in a quarterback. He just he wasn't 6'4", 225. But if I had to go start a college team and I needed somebody to start it with, Clint Sterner was the type of quarterback because he's a guy who bounced back from some adversity. In 1998, Arkansas had Tennessee on the ropes. And Clint, unfortunately, fumbled. Tennessee got on the ball, finished off an undefeated season with that game, and went on won a national championship. Clint bounced back the next year and was tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. And then he had some time with the Dallas Cowboys. He also spent some time in what was called NFL Europe. And he sat down with Drew Doherty after a stint on Texans 360 and talked about that time, time of his as a player, his life in the NFL, and also his life in NFL Europe. Let's go back about just under 20 years. You're a young guy right out of college, and you're getting paid to do your job in a foreign country. What was NFL Europe like? Well, you take, add to that, I mean, I was a South Texas guy, and I had left the state of Texas one time in my life before, um, I guess before I started going on. I went on a couple of recruiting trips, but it was like LSU, yeah, um, Nashville. I'd never left this four or five state region in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I would call it the, the, the deep south. You know, I'd never left that Arkansas, Oklahoma um Tennessee, obviously, Louisiana, and I had gone on a family trip. We drove over to Mobile, Alabama one time. We got there, and there was the tide had come up and gone back down, and there were jellyfish everywhere. I was like, get me the <laughs> hell out of here. Literally, there was jellyfish everywhere, all over the, the front yards of these beautiful homes that were on the on the uh, gulf, and uh, you couldn't step on them because they'd sting your feet, so it was a hell of a trip. But anyway, um, you know, add that to the mix, and so when I get sent over there, I'm nervous. What year is this again? 2000. So, so you it, just – I played with the Cowboys for a year in the offseason. The way that works is the team had, was required to send five guys over there that was on their roster. Right. And then they had to pick up guys off the streets and, and sign them to the offseason roster and send them over. But you had A players. The league was made up of most A – was mostly there for A players. They would send their five guys over, and half the teams in the league would actually use it. The other half didn't want it to be around. So it was a little bit of a battle from an ownership standpoint. But – uh, from a player standpoint, it was it was a lot of fun, man. I, we go to we go to uh, Tampa Bay for three weeks, 
for training camp. It was a really cool setup. They, yeah. they put us up. They feed us, obviously. You can go to worse places in the state. Yeah, no that's doubt. That's a nice – that's a fun place. And, and we were in St. Pete, too. So yeah. was, we were right on the water. I mean, one team one team was actually on the beach. We were kind of – we were on the, the opposite, like an, on, a, on a bay, on an inlet, and in, in the inland side of it. And this is um, your – all of you guys, but all six teams. But go they to broke Europe. you up by your team, right? All, all six teams go to Tampa for training camp, and and each team had a team hotel, right, in a different part of of Tampa, Clearwater, that that whole region there. Were there other teams like so? It's, you had a few Cowboys teammates, but weren't there some other NFL teams that had yeah guys yeah, on, the, so on your had, roster? Yeah, so we had Green Bay. It was Cowboys, Green Bay, Denver, um, God, the Redskins. That had to be kind of weird. Yeah, well, no, because I mean, we all had the same uniform on, and we look, we were yeah. all fighting to get a job. That nobody was coming over to Europe that had made two million dollars a year before. Yeah, I mean, yeah. everybody coming over there was minimum or, or trying to get a, trying to get a, a jersey essentially. So, um, they had we had little stickers on the back of our helmet, you know, that that told what team you were with. Okay, um, but man, it was cool, man. I, I went over there. We went to Scotland, and Scotland is is a tough, tough place to live. I enjoyed it. I wasn't really a big Braveheart guy, <laughs> you know, so. Um, I got into Braveheart. I, I watched the movie. I, I, I traveled the, the countryside, saw the castles were really cool. I could have done all of that in about a week or two yeah. and come back to the States, but I had to stay there for three months. And Ooh. so the weather was awful. Um, it was it would rain. It literally, the first, they told us about this weather issue and literally the first practice. We practiced at a soccer facility, right? Soccer's real big over there. So the facilities weren't bad, but we get there and we're walking out to the field and I'm like, we get to the practice field, and it's it's the field was built. It's like they took a built a big hill and cut a hundred yard top off of it. You know, so you had a hundred yard. Your field was lifted like ten or twelve feet off the ground on, on this hill. So it wouldn't flood. So it wouldn't flood. Yeah, I was like, what the hell is this? Why are we practicing on a hill? And they said, well, because it rains so much, and and the the ground is so saturated that it, they have to lift it to keep it. You know, the field from really just be t- tearing up essentially. And so we go to practice, man. It rains, it sleets, and it sunshines all in, same, in, in a two-hour span. And I thought right then, boy, this is going to be a hell of a three months now. <laughs> this is going to be a hell of a run here, boys. Buckle up. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it, I what, were you, what were you doing when you were not doing football stuff? Well, we were in a team hotel, so it's actually like a, a big. I mean, I, I was like not a dorm. A, I was not in a fraternity. Yeah, like a dorm. You yeah. know, I mean, we you had you get really close to the guys that you played over there with because some of them that are married, they're away from their wives. I mean, everybody's away from family. It's all you got. It truly yeah. is a situation where it's all you got, and so you make the best of it. Uh, thing was, a lot of guys are video were video game guys, so they loved it. They just hold up in their room and play video games all day. I'm not a video game guy, so right. I was. I was always out running the streets, going, find, trying to find a, a good restaurant, or trying to go to a soccer game, or, or just out cutting up somewhere. We had a casino across the street, underground nice. casino across the street, and uh, I spent way too much time in there and way too much of my uh, weekly my weekly <laughs> check in there. But uh, but no, nah, man, it, it was good. I it, it, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Looking back, it's one of those things where I never would have went to Scotland. Yeah, and, and not not to mention when you're in Scotland, when you, you know we played in Barcelona, Spain. You played in uh, Berlin, Germany played in uh, Dusseldorf, Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, you played in all these different... Do you have time to see Cologne, any of those places? Or yeah, you- yeah, they took us... So, so when we traveled, this is cool, when you traveled, we would usually travel... When I was in Scotland, we traveled by plane because it was an yeah. island, obviously. But when we when I was in Amsterdam a few years later, the Dolphins sent me to Amsterdam, we actually did everything by train. Mm-hmm. So it, it was it was really cool that you would, tr- you would travel out a day in advance and you'd leave the day after sleep. So you'd actually have a day to hang out after the game... You knew, hey man, let your hair. That's really the only time to let your hair down a little bit. Wow. And and the cool thing was, was you like we'd be in Berlin, 
and I'd have four dudes that I played college ball with that were with other NFL teams that were with the Berlin team. Right. And so I could, after the game, we could hang it at the coolest bar in Berlin because we usually had the sponsorships with the league and the team mm-hmm. and um, and catch up with everybody. If your family came over, it was it was a great time to, to travel and see the city. I remember seeing the Berlin Wall for the first time. You what know, was that I, like? I, well, the crazy thing is, as Americans, you, you, we we study it growing up, and you know what it is from from the day I can remember in elementary is talking about you know the Berlin Wall sure. and just general studies, and so it's made up to be this. You think in your in your mind it separated two countries, or it separated a country in half, right? Like two mm-hmm. countries essentially, and it, in your mind you think it's just this huge wall. In reality, I've seen bigger wall. I mean, Jerry Jones got a bigger wall around his around his compound in in Highland Park, Texas. <laughs> I mean, it's not that big, and and it was it was just it was crazy. We had guys picking up rocks. A guy picked up a rock and. That was from where it crumbled. Right, picked up a rock and threw it up against the wall, and a, and a, and a local was like, "Hey, no, 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 don't, don't, you can't, you can't do that kind of deal." So it's one of those things where it's a, I guess I don't know exactly, I don't remember all the history behind it, but it's a, it's kind of a, a, a landmark or a sure. monument, for a lack of better terms, that that uh, people just protect. And so it was cool, man. It was it, those countries are older than our. I mean, there's buildings in those countries that are older than our country. Yeah. And to think of that is just, we went to Paris. I remember I went to Paris with a bunch of guys at first. I was like, Paris? I ain't going to Paris with a bunch of dudes. And then I was like, ah. Paris is cool. It was really cool. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, we saw the Notre Dame, which just burned down, obviously. Yeah. But, I mean, hearing the stories behind that of how old that building is and how it's older than our country, I mean, that kind of stuff is amazing. That stuff I never would. In South Texas, in Baytown, Texas, I don't know that I'd have got too far away from the chemical plants had it not been for football. So right. uh, it, it was a cool experience, man. Man, Cliff Sterner is absolutely right. He is he's a smart football guy. He knows he knows the game. He played quarterback. He's teaching quarterbacks right now. He is molding young quarterbacks. Love to listen to him on Sports Radio 610. I love it when he's in studio when I'm on because I would love to do more radio with him because I, I think the two of us would do some some badass football radio. There's no doubt about that. I mean, Ted Johnson and I used to do that. I, I think Clint and I would do um, and have some, uh, some, a lot of fun doing that. But that was life in the NFL. One guy on one side of it, Mike Parsons, our director of equipment services, talking about his life in the NFL, what he has to do. Wade Smith talking about the great years he spent here with Houston Texans as a Pro Bowl guard. And then Clint Sterner talking about his life in the NFL, including a stint in NFL Europe. And he wasn't alone. There were a lot of guys that had to spend some time in NFL Europe. Some guys absolutely loved it. Some guys look back on it with fondness. Some guys are like, eh, I didn't really want to go. But I think there are guys with a lot of memories of that time in NFL Europe. In fact, Hall of Famer Kurt Warner went to NFL Europe, and really it's kind of where he got his career kick-started again. So appreciate Mike and Wade and Clint for their stories of life in the NFL. Now, tomorrow's theme, Texans' top 100 moments. Now, only the auditory ones. When I tell you about the Texans Top 100 Moments, if you're going, wait a second, I, what, are you, what are you talking about, John? Well, we have been celebrating the Texans Top 100 Moments for about, I guess, three weeks now, and we're leading up to the moment number one being unveiled on Monday night, or Monday, September 9th, leading up to the game against the Saints in the Astrodome Monday Night Football, the opener for the 2019 season. Now, yes, the Texans have only been around since 2002, they are the youngest NFL franchise. But, look, we're not going to let the Bears and Packers have all the fun just because they're a bunch of old guys, if you follow me. Old franchises, I should say. So we decided to get on the fun, and we decided to celebrate 
not just on the field. I mean, you could look at the Bears and the Packers and just say, okay, 100, 100 players, 100 moments. I mean, you go all the way back to the to the 20s, you know, guys like Don Hudson and George Hallis with the Packers and the Bears. But with us, it well, it only goes back 17 years. We thought, look, let's celebrate what the franchise has done as an NFL franchise. So we started counting them down, and we decided that we were going to give an opportunity to count down that moment in some particular way. So we've done some off the field. We've done some on the field. And I think one the other day that Mark wrote about was the expansion draft, getting Gary Walker and Seth Payne in that expansion draft, getting those guys to come here from Jacksonville and being a part of those early Houston Texans defenses was just, that was a huge coup at the time. But Drew Dorney and I have been doing bonus in the lab. So if you heard in the lab podcast, we've been doing that each and every week, and we kind of nerd out um, and talk about different things that you know we normally wouldn't talk about on Texans All Access, or you wouldn't think we would. And we kind of dive deep into things such as you know which three Oilers would you want to put on this 2019 Texan squad? You know we do things like that, and so we decided let's do some bonus in the labs discussing these top 100 moments, and so. We've got a few of those for you tomorrow, the ones that we have done. J.J. Watt against the Colts in 2012. Yeah, that's a game that people forget about. They forget a lot about that, especially in that 2012 season because they remember the Monday night loss at New England. But the Texans had to turn back around and face the Colts. And the Colts were on fire, sort of like last year. They are on fire, and Watt was unbelievable. He was incredible in that game. The Texans won a division that day, the only time – or the first time they had won a division at home because they had won it in Cincinnati the year before. So they won it at home. It's great to celebrate that at home with the fans. They did that with a great game by J.J. Watt. Daniel Manning is a name people have heard since 2011 around here. In 2012, he had a great comeback game against his former team, the Chicago Bears. Whitney Merciless had three and a half sacks against the Tennessee Titans, a game that I distinctly remember for a number of different reasons. And it was the turning point, the turning point, of that 2015 season, and then J.J. Watt in 2014 in the great season that he had. Could have been an MVP season if Aaron Rodgers wasn't so great with the Green Bay Packers, but he was incredible against the Buffalo Bills. Yes, he had one pick six, but he had nine quarterback hurries that day as well. So we will celebrate the Texans' top 100 moments tomorrow as our theme week continues on Tuesday. Big thanks to Wade, to Clint, to Mike for joining us on this show. Appreciate you guys. We'll see you tomorrow, and as always, go Texans.